My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm on the faculty of the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. I was recently invited to speak at the annual conference of the American Psychological Association. This year's APA conference was held in Honolulu, Hawaii. My remarks before the APA Division on Psychologists and Public Services Section on Police and Public Safety's Meeting on Police Misconduct were recorded for this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. In my remarks, I report the preliminary findings of my current research project on police crime. This project is supported by award number 2011-IJ-CX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed are those of the author and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. In terms of the literature on police misconduct, and what I'm interested uh, specifically is police crime. In other words, officers who are arrested for criminal conduct. There is an interesting body of literature out there. There is a good number of studies on a few police departments. We've got a lot of information about misconduct in the New York Police Department. And we know going way back, well over 100 years, that every 20 years or so, something happens in the NYPD and there's an independent commission that's appointed. And I guess we're about due for that right about about now or so, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in that regard. So we know from other independent commissions too, for example, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission in the early 1970s, and if you ever get an opportunity to read uh, their report, it's quite troubling with the interference, for example, uh, by Arlen Specter when he was district attorney in Philadelphia County to keep the state from investigating misconduct in the Philadelphia Police Department. And we know a lot from investigative reporting from journalists uh, that have been written a lot, and that's obviously how we got to the Knapp Commission in the 1970s. The Boston Globe's done a lot, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in recent years has done a lot to write on police misconduct. And then there's, this is just a few things in terms of the literature on uh, police crime, but it's interesting because if we go back to the police and the public, one of the things we see is that police officers, even when they had trained observers with them who they knew were there as trained observers doing research, uh, a number of officers, 20-some percent, tend to commit crimes in the presence of the researchers while they're on duty. We also know that police officers are generally exempt from law enforcement. I started my research sort of taking up where Jim Fife left off is the way I looked at it, and that Paul McCulley at IUP had suggested to me that that was a good starting point, would be to take a look at, he looked at career-ending police misconduct and he had access to the personnel files of uh, NYPD officers over about a 19 or 20 year stretch of time up until the day before the then current commissioner had started at the NYPD. And, and I wanted to look at something different than that and wanted to extend the research. And I remembered something that I had been told as a recruit at the New Hampshire State Police Academy back in the mid-1980s. And it loosely was that there are three things that will mess you up in your career. And it's you know loosely stated as uh, booze, bucks, and something else. So I learned, you know, okay, uh, alcoholism, uh, problems with women and relationships, and um, uh, money problems, gambling type things uh, are going to get you in trouble as a police officer. That was a warning we were given at the New Hampshire State Police Academy. It was always back in the back of my head and I thought about it years later when I was starting to think of you know thesis topics and topics I was interested in studying as a criminology student in a PhD program. And building on a lot of other people's work, came up with the idea that in terms of a typology and this probably isn't correctly called a typology in that they're not exclusive categories, but that 
all crime for which police officers are arrested generally falls into one or more of five categories. It's violence-related, sex-related, drug-related, alcohol-related, and or profit-motivated. If we get down to what's left, the, ca the few cases that don't fit any of those categories, it seems to be messing with somebody for sport just downright meanness that, that gets them arrested for something, some, some sort of a uh, you know, payback or prank or something that gets out of control in an odd way, and we've, we've got some cases like that. In terms of the methodology, I had developed, and this, I don't know if a lot of research starts this way, but it originally started uh, to win a bet in a master's level class where I was a student in 2004 after having gone back to school, ha having practiced law for about a decade. And that was the issue whether police officers get arrested very often. And I decided, well, you know what? There really isn't any official data out there. There's no data source that you can go to and try to get statistics on this. Something that I've got to stop saying soon because NIJ obviously is funding this research and other studies in this area. I wanted to look into how could I research this when there isn't any data available. There's no official statistics. And at that point, Google had just come out with Google News a few years earlier that, which literally developed as a response to September 11th, 2001 and the events there when somebody at Google realized there was no place you could go on the internet and look and get timely information, trending information right away from a variety of sources where it's put in a place in a logical way. And that's what started Google News. And the Google News search engine, not the page, is what interests me because you can set up Google Alerts to constantly crawl the Google News search engine and whenever it gets a hit on the terms, I get an email saying that there's a hit. So the idea there is any time that a news publication uh, that's on the internet, reports on any one of the 48 search terms that we put into Google Alerts, we get an article, and we print out the article and ultimately code it later on in the methodology that I'll explain later. That's the, the way that we started collecting data. Since then, we've added a variety of things because we have the luxury now of a research staff and some money, so we're able to get court records when we know individuals' names and things like that and supplement our records with that. So the research project with NIJ has has three primary goals, and the first is to study the nature and extent of police crime arrests across the country at different agencies, not just looking at some large agencies or a few agencies. Secondly, to determine how law enforcement agencies respond when their officers get arrested. In other words, what are the adverse employment outcomes that result? The second part of that is how do the courts handle these cases? What are the courtroom workgroup issues? What are the court processing issues? And that's something that we're just starting to study now because we've now got enough data and time has gone on and we've been able to follow these cases through. And then the third goal is to explore as a correlate of police misconduct whether officers who've been arrested also at some point during their career have been named as a party defendant in federal court litigation pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1983. So whether at some point during the career they've been sued for acting in their official capacity under the color of law to, to violate someone's federally protected rights may not be for the case which they get arrested here, but we wanted to see you know, what we find that. We wanted to learn more about how often do police officers get arrested. And as an odd feature of 1983 actions, going back to when Monroe versus Pape was overturned uh, by Monell in 1978, we said municipalities could be sued under 1983 for money damages. 
Even so, the general practice now is that when a lawyer puts together a lawsuit, writes up the complaint, does the cover sheet and files it in federal court, it's captioned that the defendants, it may or may not name the municipality they work for, the government agency, but it generally names the officers uh, by name. What we had, I guess paraphrasing uh, Rob Blagojevich, you know, we had something that was golden, and that was a list of thousands and thousands of police officers who'd been arrested that we could now run through the uh, federal court's PACER system, the public access to court's electronic record system, and look in their master name index and see if these officers had been sued at some point. So as with all research, there are strengths and limitations of our research. We do believe, and, and there's, there's some articles and research out there to say that this type of content analysis research, Google News is really the preferred data source for this type of study. It's obviously research that's limited by the information that we find uh, generally on the Internet. We only have information by virtue of our coding protocol where there's an official arrest. So if somebody has been uh, disciplined in a police department and there's no arrest that's actually happened, we're not following that type of case. And and then obviously there's a bit of discretion. I know, uh, as you do, that you know if, if you look at a newspaper, it used to be when you had those honor boxes where people would actually buy newspapers, that you know above the fold in the newspaper they wanted to have you know a picture of a fire, a car crash, or something like that. If it, if it bleeds, it leads, is what newspaper editors would say. So there's something about these types of stories that find their way into the newspapers. And, and the evening news, we now collect videos, actually, of these, uh, these cases from local news reports. And these numbers are from uh, last year, but I can tell you that they've only grown at this point. If we look at over on the far side here with the 438, that was the year 2005, and that was the first year I was doing the research and still developing the search terms. Since then, all of these uh, years were, were way up over 900 cases, close to 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 cases of officers, non-federal sworn law enforcement officers across the country who've been arrested one or more times. Now, our unit of analysis for most of what I'm presenting today is criminal arrest case. So if somebody has been arrested, there are three rapes with three different victims or three different dates. That's three different criminal cases that could have different case outcomes. That's our unit of analysis. We look at criminal case. Now, we also flip it around and look at the individual, we do have a unique identifier that we've created for each individual, so we can also look at that. But it's uh, when we look at that unit of analysis, it's at least 900 officers a year being arrested typically across the country. And this is, um, we call it vegetable medley. Um, and it's, um, it's interesting because once you put the state lines in here, it's all over the place where officers have been arrested. Now, this is at the county level or independent cities. So the independent cities would be the cities of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, Carson City, Nevada. Otherwise, they're all at the county level. I've been asked questions. It, we could probably tell you something about a lot of the states. Uh, Florida. Is anybody from Florida? No? Originally. Originally. Well, I was curious, you know, except for the Gulf Coast here, you know, what's going on here with Florida? Well, it turns out every time somebody's arrested in Florida and fingerprinted, if you're fingerprinted subsequent to an arrest, your fingerprints are run through a database of commissioned law enforcement officers in the state of Florida. So if you get arrested and you're fingerprinted for a DUI, your chief's going to know about it or for simple assault for domestic violence. You're not going to be able to hide, and maybe that has something to do with that. I'm not sure why, but there are other states that are just as ugly in terms of 
Now, these are cases, not officers. So it could be you know, misleading if you've got in one rural county in Pennsylvania an officer who was uh, ultimately convicted for uh, sexually molesting 20-some uh, young girls. Obviously, it shows up a darker color there. And I apologize for the, uh, the weirdness of the counties in Hawaii. Apparently, I'm told this by a geography professor, that the uh, GIS software we were using counted uh, not the coastline, but out a little bit. I don't know where the county lines are, so that's why they look sort of blurry there. It's kind of odd, but I thought, since we're in Hawaii, I thought I'd mention that. These aren't 0%, but less than 1% of our cases are tr officers in tribal police departments. Most of those are alcohol-related offenses, we found. Regional police departments, if you've got several townships that have banded together and cut costs and formed a regional department. Constables, those are typically, most of them are uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Texas and Tennessee, and constables have their own uniqueness in terms of the types of crimes they get into that uh, to some extent are, are, are similar to sheriffs in some states. About 72% municipal police departments in most of the studies, if you think of the numbers there, where 72% are municipal agencies, you'll see with some of the differences as we go through. If we look at years of service, so over on this far side here we have rookie police officers, so zero would be less than one year as a sworn law enforcement officer, going down here to 47 years, but in any event, it goes from zero to 47 years. What the literature would say is officers tend to get in trouble in the first few years of their career, three to five years maybe, and then they just write it out, right? That's what Van Manen would have said, that they just write it out after that and they don't get in trouble anymore. But all of my studies have shown that at 18 to 20 years of service, and we didn't see this until we put the years of service in three-year interval categories, 18 to 20 years of service, there's a blip. Um, we see that at every five years. So if you've got 25-year retirement in some agencies, 20-year retirement in other agencies, some people make it, I don't know why, 30, but if you look even at 35 years, at these five-year intervals starting at 18 to 20, we see this blip where there's something going on, and this is probably the best audience to ask this question to, what is going on in the two or three years prior to retirement that officers are finding themselves getting arrested? And I don't know what the answer to that is. We've thought of a variety of things. Are they trying to get, like in Massachusetts, the the last three years or the highest three years of your uh, salary, uh, you know, go to set your pension. So is it that you're back on the street and the patrol function working overtime details uh, where you weren't before? You know, what is it about prior to retirement? Uh, will want to get to some magic number. If they want to get 30 years in or they want to get 25 years in or something. And, and they're done. I mean, they, they should retire but they hang on in order just to be able to get that 1% or 2% more in retirement. And, and as a result, they make lots of mistakes. Make mistakes. Yeah, they're just not, maybe they're more careless. But we see this, and we'll, I'll talk about it in, in a variety of different contexts with different types of criminal offenses as we go on here, but it, it's, a, it's an odd thing. By the way, back to the, the map, I did want to mention that um, as of the end of June, we had 8,154 arrest cases in our database, including 6,853 individual officers who were arrested that were employed by 2,903 non-federal, state, local, and special law enforcement agencies across the country in 1,339 counties or independent cities in all 50 states 
and uh, the District of Columbia. When we looked at lawsuits, so uh, federal civil rights actions that are filed in federal court, sometimes they're filed in local court, and one of the variables that's coming up over and over again in our studies is being statistically significant. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out why. If a case is removed from a local court uh, by a defense attorney, a civil defense attorney, and, and, and refiled in federal court because there's a federal question under 1983, that keeps showing up as statistically significant, the fact that it was removed. And, that, and it was never meant to be a variable that I was, I don't know why I even had it, but it keeps showing up. But it's interesting because depending, we've only looked at a few cases. We did a pilot study with our officers that were arrested for officer-involved domestic violence. And I used a, um, a definition of family violence that's promulgated by the American Academy of Family Physicians that I liked because it was more inclusive. If we just went with a statutory definition of domestic assault, for example, we wouldn't get a lot of the cases that we were really interested in that really were family violence. So we wanted to capture more cases rather than less. We did this pilot study, and here we've changed the unit of analysis to officers, so we're looking at individuals. And with the domestic violence cases, exactly 21% of those officers had been sued for violating somebody's civil rights at some point during their law enforcement career as a sworn officer. They're bad at home, they got arrested for domestic violence-related offense, and they're bad at work where somebody sued them. And I gotta tell you, I'm shocked when we looked at these lawsuits across the country. I used to practice law, you know, in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., and uh, I assumed it would be big cities where these cases were filed in federal court. And after a graduate assistant had been searching you know, this PACER database for a few weeks, and I looked at the first case that I pulled up that they had uh, a few weeks before downloaded the PDF files, it was a, a small town in uh, rural Montana. And what we've seen is rurality does not seem to be a bar for finding a lawyer that's willing to take a civil rights case, often on a contingency basis, and file it in federal court. These cases are just a huge number of cases. If an officer was arrested for a drug-related crime, it's much higher. About 31% of those officers have been sued in federal court at some point in their career. It may have nothing to do with the arrest case, but it might. And in fact, in the drug cases, I think a lot of them probably do. And then... Is that also uh, no, drug, we, we separate drugs and alcohol as, as separate for our purposes. And then officers arrested for any crime, about 22%. Now, we've done more recent studies, and with the sex-related offenses, it seems to be uh, not as high as the drug-related, but it's, it's higher than, than I would have, would have thought, actually. Unless the victim's a child, and it turns out, it's, uh, I guess it makes sense, uh, maybe child victims don't pursue federal civil rights litigation, or their parents don't, but that was uh, statistically significant. As we look at a variety of tables, and I always hesitate to show tables, but this is a typical table one for uh, a lot of our studies that are published, and that a lot of our studies are published. We've had six studies published, so it's not a lot of studies, but uh, we typically have a table like this, and this is off-duty officers, and this is from 2005 through 2007. So they're arrested for a crime that occurred while they were off duty. And exactly 5% of our sample overall in those three years is female officers, but the off-duty crimes, it's a little bit higher. 5.8% of the cases, the officer was a female officer. And again, here we've got 72.4% are in municipal agencies. So it's pretty much what we'd see. We typically see in the South, it's usually up over 40% of the cases are from the South. And this is typical 12%, 12 to 14% from the West. So we've got 
categories here where we're just looking at the bivariate level of chi-square. So we've got off-duty offenses here and on-duty offenses here. And we have, these are all statistically significant. And what we see here is that alcohol-related offenses that result in arrest are more likely to be off-duty crimes. And that makes sense. Uh, on the other hand, profit-motivated cases and drug-related cases more likely to be an arrest that occurred from an event uh, incident that occurred while they were on duty. And then sex-related offenses and violence-related offenses we see are both on-duty and off-duty offenses. Policing is violent and more and more I see that it just isn't turned off when an officer goes home. We see a lot of spillover <coughs> to their family life. Again with the off-duty offenses, offenses that are more likely to be committed while an officer is off duty and here, but we have them just by the raw numbers. So simple assault, driving under the influence, aggravated assault, statutory rape, pornography, those are more likely to be off-duty type offenses. Online solicitation of a child, although amazingly we do have a number of cases where that, that happens on duty and sometimes with a police department computer, which seems odd. I had been looking at federal appellate court opinions and, and what were the factors that courts considered when they were trying to decide in a case that in a civil civil rights case that involved an officer's off-duty conduct, whether that happened in their official capacity. And there are a number of measures that the courts typically look at to try to make that judgment. Is this something that was in their official capacity? Was it something about their job that was related to the events here? So if they displayed an official weapon, if they displayed their department-issued service weapon, that's one of the factors that's considered. Whether they displayed a badge, that type of thing. And we looked at these starting in the domestic violence cases. I guess actually in the off-duty cases we looked at these, and it's interesting because none of them are huge, but in 110 cases, almost 10% of the cases, they displayed their official police weapon in the course of the events of what led up to their being arrested. And this is right about the time that I realized when we looked at suspended uh, whether they were suspended at some point after being arrested, whether they were uh, terminated, or whether they voluntarily resigned their job. I came to realize a number of years ago that it's really difficult to tell when an officer has resigned or terminated when you're looking at news reports. Some states, they're not going to get into personnel matters much in news reports, and it's just very hard to tell. And I don't know if it makes a whole lot of difference. And frankly, I'm really not that good at multinomial logistic regression with a trichotomous-dependent variable. It just sort of um, you know, makes my head explode. Um, and it always offends friends when I send them a copy of one of my articles that uses phrases like that. We look now at more of a a binary level usually where it's just whether they lost their job or not. But you see in this multinomial logistic regression table, it's just too early in the day to deal with this. But I can tell you that an officer who has 18 years of service or more at the time of their arrest, or if the arrest was many years after when the events happened at the time the crime was committed, actually it's when the crime's committed, 18 years or more at the time the crime was committed, they're more likely to resign their job as opposed to being involuntarily terminated. And that makes sense. If you've got 22 years in as a police officer, you know, you're more likely to just say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to quit. But on the other hand, officers with 18 or more years of service at the time of their crime are more likely to be convicted than officers with 17 or fewer years of service at the time of their crime. Officers with 17 or fewer years of service are more likely to be fired 
and they're less likely to be convicted. So there's a courtroom work group issue there. The court's thinking, well, they've already been punished enough in these cases, they've lost their job, and they're not as liable to be convicted. I'm not too sure about that. If we move on to looking at some of the domestic violence work that we did. It's interesting, going back to the late 1980s, early 1990s, the uh, House of Representatives, Congress, uh, there were some committee hearings that were held on officer-involved domestic violence. It's the first time that I can see that the federal government was really concerned with domestic violence in the hearings on officer-involved domestic violence in 1991, which were three years prior to the Violence Against Women Act being signed in 1994. And what I think is really important for our purposes, the Lautenberg Amendment to the Federal Gun Control Act, which was 1996. If somebody has been convicted of a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, they cannot carry a firearm. They cannot carry a firearm if they've been convicted. And the Supreme Court has clarified that. It says you don't have to have a special crime with a special name, but you've got to look at the relationship between the victim and the offender to see if it's a qualifying crime of domestic violence. And that extends what the prior law was if there had been a felony conviction. Some jurisdictions, you know, I question whether they're really dealing with that in a proper way. I know that Honolulu County has, at least on their website up until recently, I don't know if it's there now, had a form that they do annual background checks to see if any county employees have been convicted of any misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence in the last year, but the form says police officers or anybody who carries a gun as part of their job, I think is what it says, is excluded from this annual search. Well, that's not what the federal law says. And I do know from my research, you know, we're not looking to out anybody, but we know of uh, many dozens of cases where police officers have been convicted of crimes since the Lautenberg Act went into effect that they, you know, it's up to tenure in federal prison, uh, and yet they're still employed as police officers. And we see it all over the country. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Now, there is an exception if an officer has a a protection order against them. A judge can sign on the protection order a, a waiver that allows them to carry their gun at work only. Uh, that raises questions for me too, but the law does allow for that. But that's only if they've not yet been convicted while a uh, protection order is in effect. And then one thing that really got me interested in this area of work is uh, David Brame, the police chief in Tacoma, Washington, who in 2003 killed uh, his wife and then himself in the presence of their children in a parking lot. And the more that was looked into after that, the uglier it got. And some of you may be very well familiar with that case. By the way, I think Brame, I don't remember the number, but three or four psychologists said, independent of each other, do not hire this man back when he was a young rookie or wanted to become a young police, a police officer at a young age. Do not hire this man. Do not touch him with a 10-foot pole. Uh, they were very, very concerned. He's hired anyway. There are allegations of, of one or more rapes that were never followed up on when he was employed as a police officer, worked his way up to chief, and it ended in an ugly way. You may have been involved in some of the funding now with uh, the Crystal uh, uh, Judson Brame amendments to the Violence Against Women Act that provide funding for attorneys general across the state to develop training programs for officer-involved domestic violence policies and local agencies. Again, there are no comprehensive statistics available on officer-involved domestic violence. The government doesn't keep any sort of data on this. Agency records are generally uh, not available to researchers. 
And then, you know, self-report data, I'm always suspect of it. You know, people tend to want to show themselves in the light most favorable, and Ed McGuire has shown that police departments answer surveys uh, that way, too. There's a social desirability effect. And even if you look at some of the social desirability scales that you put into surveys, I think on one of them, one or more of them, there's an item that's something like, uh, sometimes I like to smash things. Well, the research that was done in Baltimore on police officers and uh, domestic violence, that was a statistically significant variable, it turned out. It was it was meant to be there for a social desirability scale, but sometimes I like to smash things came up as being a, an important variable in the research there. Here, again, we're down to 4% of the officers in the cases are female, and only a few of the cases occurred on duty. We had one case, I think it was in New Jersey, where an officer he just couldn't help himself in the middle of a shift in the middle of the night, drove seven miles through several other jurisdictions to his estranged wife or girlfriend's home and you know, proceeded to pummel her while he was not answering calls in his marked car and in uniform. But most of these cases... Almost every single one of them occur off duty. And it's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, jokes about, you know, it's not a very good thing to be a lawyer in a one lawyer town, but if you're in a two lawyer town, you can have a hell of a good time, right? Thing, well, how is an officer getting arrested if there's only one full time officer? Well, they're part time officers perhaps, but then what we see, and I don't know if I've got it on here, it's on other tables, that in these cases, and even by the way, with, with on duty drug cases, we see an awful lot of a very high percentage, they're arrested by some agency other than their employer. Now that could be because their employer is doing the right thing and saying, you know what, we're going to bring in whatever, the county detectives, the state, whatever we need to do and cure ourselves of any potential conflict of interest here, any problem along those lines. And then people don't always live in the jurisdiction where they live too, so that's another factor that, that comes into play here. How could we have a stranger or an acquaintance be the victim in a family violence case. What happened in those situations, uh, sometimes it was a responding officer who was assaulted and those charges are thrown on. Other times it was, let's say, a babysitter working in the police officer's home who was sexually assaulted, that type of thing. And that actually met our definition. If you're in the home, even a neighbor's home, uh, that met our definition of family violence. So that's the, the type of thing that we saw here. Over 12% of the victims are male. And with all of the cases involving domestic violence, and it's even worse with the sex offenses, an awful lot of these cases seem to involve children as the victims. When we look at the most serious offense in the cases, we, we actually track everything they're charged with. So if we can figure out everything they're charged with, we, we track that. Then we go and we look at the UCR hierarchy and figure out what's the most serious crime charged. And there seems to be, in a lot of police crime cases, and this is especially so with domestic violence, where there's so much at stake because, you know, people know that if, uh, generally they know, hopefully, that if you're convicted of a, a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, you can't carry a firearm, and there's no exclusion for the military or law enforcement officers. There seems to be preferential charging decisions that go on here quite often. We actually have one case, it's not on this chart because it wasn't the most serious offense charge, but an officer was charged with unlawful possession of an alligator in a domestic violence case. So when you get these kind of charges thrown on there, you end up with, and maybe it's not best shown on this chart, but you end up with plea bargains where there's a plea bargain to something that's not a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. So we see that 
quite often. And some of these are quite alarming. The kidnapping, generally, these are false imprisonment type cases or abduction type cases. They're not the, you know, not Elizabeth Smart type kidnapping. I'm not talking about that typically. And then when we look at conviction here at the bivariate level versus whether they're not convicted, I think um, these are the statistically significant variables when we just look at associations one against another. Probably more relevant if we look at multivariate models where they're competing against each other to see what's statistically significant. An officer is more likely to be convicted, and I'll show this to you in a, um, in a chart that graphically displays it a little bit different, but if they use other body parts, not their hands or fists, so what's left? Well, you know, we get into these great discussions with coders that, you know, I, I can't seem to write the coding protocol specific enough, but use your imagination, but a lot of it's kicking, uh, kicking, hair pulling. Hair pulling is a big deal, apparently, and it gets into these news articles for some reason. Hair pulling, spitting on people in these types of cases. So if it's a sex-related offense, the simple odds of conviction are five and a half times greater if it's a sex-related offense that they're charged with. It's over uh, simple odds of conviction are 4.6 times greater. If an officer used a personally owned gun in the commission of the crime that they're charged. And I wish I could remember why I came up with that variable. Uh, one day I just you know, thought of it that that's something I wanted to look at in these cases, whether it was a personally owned gun or a department-issued gun. And it keeps coming up as statistically significant. So the courts are looking at this. If they're, you know, they're losing their exemption here. If they're using, if they're kicking somebody, if they're pulling their hair, if they're uh, using a personally owned gun as opposed to a department gun, they're not getting the benefit of the doubt. And or if there are fatal injuries to a victim, they're five times greater than the officer would be convicted. So here, this is just showing the ten most serious offense charge in these domestic violence cases. I suppose they all make sense. Uh, by the way, we'll see a little bit later with vandalism, the courts just don't tolerate it if you're smashing people's stuff, if you're uh, destroying people's property. They'll overlook a lot, but they won't overlook that. And then the relationship here, you know, this is um, a bit troubling in that 23% of the victims in these cases were uh, the officer's child or stepchild. We got a lot of cases where there are ugly relationships, just like in any other family type situation, where you know young girls who are living in a home with their mother and somebody, a man who's somebody other than their natural father, so, uh, you know, much higher chance that they're going to be sexually abused, and we see that in these cases as well. And then here again, if we look at the disposition, and this is somewhat awkward to look at because here 100% is the smallest down here, but it's because the number of cases was low. But the courts have no tolerance, as I mentioned, for vandalism. On the other hand, they, they seem to tolerate simple assault cases for some reason because we only have 44% conviction for the simple assault cases. So 88% if they're charged with forcible rape, 87% conviction if they're charged with murder. Here again, we're looking graphically at the criminal case dispositions by weapon, and we've got 88% conviction if they used a personally owned gun, 87% conviction if they use other body parts other than their hands or fists, and again, we've got for hands or fists only 46% conviction. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It might to you. Yeah. You know, if you, if you think about courts are reluctant to convict police officers, they seem to get the benefit of the doubt in the most bizarre situations, but um, there are some things that just don't seem to be tolerated. Yeah. Did you have a question? 
No. Dogs. Well, your comment, that, to my experience, it's a lot easier for a police officer to assert that he was trying to control his spouse with his hands. It was not an assault. It was an attempt to uh, restrain her. Right. And that's why we probably have fewer convictions on hands. Whereas kicking is hard to argue you were trying to control her. Yep. With your feet. Yeah, you're, you've lost control. Yeah, and um, and I think that's 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 probably what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is hard to see, but what we have here, I did a study a number of years ago. I had some time in the summer and wanted to see, frankly, if with a very small number of cases, if I could get this paper published. So we had 24 cases at the time where police officers had been arrested for a crime involving a taser, so a conductive energy device. And, and I, I know this is hard to read, and it's probably even harder to read on your handout there, but most of these cases involved deployed. Some of them are just threats. What we have here, where it happened, the event circumstances and the victim relationship and whether they were on duty or off duty. And, you know, I got into an argument with a relative of mine as to why he needs to take his taser home. He was adamant that it was absolutely important that he take his taser home. And I just don't get it. With some of these cases, we see the same things happening. We see a lot of patterns here. And I see this in the cases since we did this more qualitative study a number of years ago. So who do they tase that, that results in them getting arrested? Well, they tase each other. And we see that more and more often. And I would include in the each other uh, volunteer firefighters. That's good sport to tase a firefighter, apparently, in some social situations. They tase homeless people. They tase handcuffed suspects. They tase teenagers who sometimes asked to be tased. We have one officer who was charged in a case where I think there were 32 kids or something like that at a career fair at a high school who asked to be tased, and he tased them all. And that caused a variety of problems and injuries. And then tase people they love, should love, or used to love, or are loved by the people they thought who loved them. We see that, and that's where we have the weird situation where the police officer allegedly shows up unexpectedly to find his spouse uh, in flagrante delecto with a deputy sheriff or something like that. We had one case where the narrative was talking about he had pulled his service pistol and out of deference to his wife's pleas to not shoot her naked lover, he put the firearm away and drew his taser and shot both of them with the taser. You know, it raises a lot of questions there with the tasers. You know, I had a student when I was working on this, we were looking at, for some reason, peer reviewers didn't want this in the article because it was anecdotal that every bit of taser training we've ever seen involves laughing. If you look at the videos that you can find, and I don't know why agencies post this stuff for officers who've gone through this training posted on YouTube, but there's always laughing involved in taser training. There's something that, you know, it goes back to the Newhall incident in the early 70s where you, know, you had California Highway Patrol officers. They were trained that you always have to uh, clean up your spent brass. So they had these six shooters and they, you know, kneel down and clean up the spent brass and several, uh, two I guess, uh, highway patrol officers in California during a gun battle were killed at point-blank range when they leaned down to clean up their spent brass in the middle of a gunfight. They did exactly what they were trained. And it got me thinking with this stuff, well, if it's funny in the training room when you tase each other, is there something about that that you think, well, you know what, it's not something that's going to give a permanent injury, and it really is funny if you think about it. So they, they do all this stuff, which none of it's really funny.
that takes us to police sexual misconduct arrests. And we're, we're remembering uh, here, I look at off-duty offenses as well as, off, as on-duty crimes because I don't think there's a bright line. And Fife and Kane said this as well, that there's really hard to draw a line as to what's on-duty and off-duty. You don't turn off the police culture when you go home. Policing is violent. You know, there was a um, police officer in Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, named Hand, who went into a Central Fidelity Bank on Old Keene Mill Road and robbed the bank, and he made his commands in the exact cadence of the felony stop commands that were then being taught at the Fairfax County Police Academy, which was unique to that agency. And the detectives that came out and took the reports from the tellers knew immediately, oh boy, you know, we got to look pretty close to home to see who that was. That was supposedly an off-duty offense. Again, we're back to that typical table one here where we're looking at police sexual misconduct arrests, and very few of the cases, less than 1%, involve uh, police women, female police officers, and 83% almost are in metropolitan counties, not in rural areas. And then if we look at the most serious offense charged here, again, we've got you know preferential charging decisions that happens in a lot of these cases. One thing that I find interesting when someone's charged with official misconduct, uh, because it's very difficult to know what the underlying nature of the crime is when they're charged with official misconduct, and that's the most serious offense charge. It seems to blur the ability to find find out exactly what happened here. But if you look at these, there's all sorts of things going on in these cases. And then here we see that half of the victims of these police officers who were arrested for sex-related crimes, half of the victims, 50.5%, are under the age of 18. Now here, when we look at the location of violence, and this is actually rank ordered if we go from the victim's home and have that, let's say, one, and number these two through whatever, as you move, it's really roughly away from their home, as you move from their home to further away from their home. And that variable becomes relevant as we get into some of the regressions. It's just stupid of me to put this on. Um, So we'll just... We'll just, you did. Well, now I can't go back. But that's just looking at the bivariate level of adult and child victims. You know, is there are statistically significant associations of differences between the uh, various variables. And now we're up to 270-some quantitative variables that we're tracking in these cases. As we go on and have more and more cases, you know, over 8,000 cases now, finding that all of a sudden the regression models are much stronger, much more robust statistically, more valid, more reliable as time as we have more data. Here with child victims, the simple odds that the victim of a police sexual misconduct arrest case is going to be a child five times greater if the arresting agency is not the officer's employer. And again, that may be by virtue of people not necessarily live where they work or work where they live. And 1.7 times greater if the officer is ultimately convicted of one or more crimes in this case. And then, interestingly, the simple odds that the victim would be a child go up by 16.7% for every one unit increase in our categorical variable of years served. So as years of service goes up, it's a little bit more chance that it's going to be a child victim. On the other hand, the simple odds of being a child victim go down if, as I mentioned earlier, the officer is ultimately sued at some point in their career under 1983. As agency size where they work, gets larger and as you move away from the victim's home. And then here we're predicting conviction in the police sexual misconduct cases and we see 
that the simple odds of conviction go up as the officer's age go up, and they decrease if the arresting agency is not the officer's employer. And here we've got a binary logistic regression model where we're predicting job loss. And interestingly, the simple odds of job loss increase if there's some mention in the news articles that there's an agency scandal or some sort of cover-up resulting from the arrest, and or if the officer is ultimately convicted of one or more crimes. So one of the things that I noticed a few years ago was that some of the statistics that I knew how to do and some of the statistics that we were typically using in our studies didn't really tell us what we wanted to know. We were interested in looking at uh, drug corruption-related variables and which drugs were influential. What I finally came up with was that classification tree or decision tree analysis really sort of worked for this type of data. And what we see here is that when we look at cases that involve drug-related police corruption where there's selling dealing and or trafficking of drugs, the drugs that matter, the drugs that are most influential on that dependent variable or that outcome variable are cocaine and marijuana. And if cocaine is not involved, heroin is then the most influential. In terms of using drugs, cases that involve personal use of drugs, cocaine is the most influential drug. And if cocaine is not involved in the case, then hydrocodone. And if not hydrocodone, crack. When we look at shakedowns that are specifically shakedowns on car stops or shakedowns of drug couriers, uh, cocaine and marijuana are the drugs of choice, the most influential drugs. So then we looked at alcohol-related offenses and wanted to look at DUIs. And this was of interest to me because I learned a long time ago, just a few police departments that I worked in as a police officer, that indeed law enforcement officers are exempt from law enforcement, especially so as a professional courtesy in DUI cases. Although I did note that when the chief of the agency I worked for in New Hampshire wandered one night across the Piscataqua River into the state of Maine, that he lost his exemption and was arrested for DUI. Uh, I thought about that for a long time. I thought this was a very interesting case. And ultimately here, 2005 through 2010, we have 782 cases that we found where police officers, sworn law enforcement officers, were arrested for one or more DUI cases. Interestingly, 7.7% are female, and we know in the research that female officers are likely to have alcohol-related issues more than you'd statistically expect. And here, this is about what I expected, 71.7% they're arrested by some agency other than their employing agency. And again, when we look at the most serious offense charged in these 782 cases, we see something that we weren't quite probably expecting, but it was what we expected in terms of preferential charging decisions. DUI was the most serious offense charged in 85% of the cases, but you also had cases where they were charged with impersonation, forgery, prostitution, indecent exposure, non-family violent offenses, all sorts of things, and some ugly things including negligent manslaughter and murder and non-negligent manslaughter in a few of the cases. What is it about these cases where officers are losing their exemption? And I think DUI really makes the case well because there's something about these cases. If we assume that police officers get a get-out-of-jail free card or they get told we'll get you a ride or whatever, they don't get arrested for DUI, which I still think is the case in, in most situations, why are these officers being arrested? And what we found is they did something really stupid that can't be dealt with without writing up a report 
or um, the fire department blabbing about it, or the chief finding out about it. It's very, very difficult to hide these cases when you have driven either your police car while on duty or your F-150 or a motorcycle off-duty into a fire truck, a fire hydrant, a fire station, a police station sally port, you know, when the garage door's down is what I meant, or when you flipped your car into the ditch. And, and we see in these cases over and over again, cars flipping in ditches. It's crazy. 54% of these cases involve traffic accidents. And an alarming number of them, by the way, involve hit and runs. We came up with a number of variables that we did a text analysis to see different kinds of events in these DUI arrest cases, and it's really interesting. What is it about these cases? What were the features of these cases? So 54%, actually here it says 53.2. I think we must have rounded up on the prior chart. And 24.4% of the cases overall are accidents with injuries. I thought it would be higher than 20% refuse to take the blood alcohol content test, so they refuse a blood or breath test, but it's about 20% of these cases. But you'll see cases where they refused a field sobriety test. So in other words, any type of thing where, and I think Van Manen said this as well, any time where the officer perceives the citizen they're interacting with as an asshole, you know, the odds that you're going to get arrested go up. And that's what we see in these DUI cases too. Driving the wrong direction on the street, displaying a weapon, having an accident while DUI, while you're evading the police. You know, we see these things over and over again. And typically, there's something about these cases where they've lost their exemption. So then only 35% of these cases, we were able to identify specific controlled substances, drugs in these DUI cases. And I don't think police officers are very good at catching driving under the influence of drug cases. It's interesting just to look at what the drugs are in these cases. So again, we look at the bivariate chart here. We've combined job loss in this chart with conviction, two separate charts, but just to put them onto one chart. And these were the variables that were statistically significant at the bivariate level. And if we were to look at table 26, predicting job loss, the simple odds of an officer losing their job after being arrested for DUI increase if the events are violent-related, if there's a fatality in a DUI-related traffic accident, if the officer was DUI in their official capacity, in other words, driving a police car, that type of thing, and if they were employed by an agency located in a rural county, the odds went up that they would lose their job. On the other hand, the simple odds of job loss go down as agency size increases. Simple odds of job loss go down if there's a scandal-related <coughs> DUI, something in the events lead to a scandal in the agency. I'm not sure I understand that, why that would be the case. And then if we look at conviction, we see that the simple odds of conviction are 1.2 times greater if there's a DUI-related traffic accident, but the odds of conviction decrease if the officer refused to BAC test, so that's because in some states there's no evidence then to get a conviction. The simple odds of conviction go down if they were driving a take-home police car. I'm not sure I understand that one either. And the simple odds of conviction go down if the officer was reassigned within the police department to another position after they were arrested. So the court seemed to think they were punished enough for some reason. So then here, this is just the decision tree analysis, but we're not depicting the trees up here, but the most influential variables, and this did not work in the binary logistic regression models, state. The state that the officer works in shows up as being the splitting variable, the most important variable in these models for both job loss and conviction. So if you're employed by a law enforcement agency that's located in Ohio, for example, you're going to be convicted. 
if you're employed by a agency in South Carolina, you're probably not going to be convicted, but you're going to lose your job because it's a right-to-work state, and the police officers seem to immediately lose their job there before any questions are asked. The other slides I have here just go into the database that we've built. And one of the things I wanted to do when I went to Bowling Green was to develop a digital imaging database. So using the university's content management system, which is used by the admissions office, by the general counsel's office, by campus operations, developed this quite large digital imaging database. And at this point, we've got over 169,000 scanned pages in this digital imaging database, all of which are OCR searched, optical character recognition process, so that we can search the content of all of these documents. So somebody calls me up and asks, do you have cases where officers were shaking down Hispanic motorists, which wasn't a variable that we were coding until recently? We were able to run searches on that. Do you have cases where officers were tormenting, harassing, and uh, stalking women who work in sex industries. And we were able to run search and found more than 100 such cases by being able to go through that. I don't know that I want to take the time to go through these last slides and explain in detail our digital imaging and relational database, but I'm happy to talk to you individually about that. But I would like to, with the 10 minutes or so we have here, to answer any questions that you might have. Did your study take a look at number of IAs prior to arrest, I mean, because sometimes stuff's get involved whether they had internal affairs right. investigations before yeah. most of the time I don't know that newspaper articles would mention mm -hmm. that however every year graduate assistants working with me will come to me and say you know what we think you ought to add something as a variable. One of them they came up to me recently with was, we had a race, by the way. I'd never coded race. And they said, you're just crazy not to code race. We can figure this out in you know, well over half the cases. I said, I'm, I'm not sure I want to, you know, it could, it could be ugly, you know. I'm not sure I want to know. But with um, officers who previously had been named like Officer of the Year or had received awards, is an awful lot of these cases involve officers who've got really good records. And, uh, I know Dr. Alper can speak to early intervention systems and that type of thing and how this would all go together. From my perspective, what I see is that in these cases where they know that there are problems, they don't pay any attention to the flag. We had a case where an officer was arrested one year for domestic assault on his wife. The next year, he was arrested for domestic assault on his estranged wife. The year following that, he was arrested for domestic assault, and the victim was his ex-wife. Next year, it was on his current girlfriend, and I swear, the fifth year, his teenage daughter was the victim. And this one officer was still employed as a police officer. In upstate New York, there was an officer that finally the feds came in after he'd been arrested eight times and charged him with a Lautenberg Act violation, and that locked him up. He's in prison now, but, you know, he had eight prior arrests. And it was all an unraveling that occurred within about a two-and-a-half, three-year period. And we see that in these cases where it's just a complete unraveling in a public way that for some reason they, they still have their jobs because once they're no longer employed as a police officer, I'm not tracking, you know, interested in their cases just because you can't do everything. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. A big reason why no federal law enforcement is included in this. 
I had a lot of friends in federal law enforcement, uh, number one. Number two, we do actually keep records on the cases, but I had to, you know, draw the line somewhere, and it just seemed to me that that's what I was interested in researching at the time. But I can't remember a case involving the United States Park Police Officer, U.S. Capitol Police, Border Patrol, different federal agencies where there are 1811 positions, you know, we see that, but we just haven't done any research with that. There's not as many cases, so quantitatively it's, you know, doing this for a long time before I'd have enough to, to do anything with it. But it, it's worth looking at. Yes, sir? You kind of mentioned uh, the South Carolina right-to-work state. Does your research go into, you know, police officers who are fired and not fired uh, compared to Yeah. Yes, recently, the samples that we ran, I don't remember what the studies were, I think it was starting with DUI, it didn't make a difference. If it was a right to work or a collective bargaining state, public collective bargaining, it made no difference at all. So then we looked at the Freedom Index, a group at George Mason University that uh, has a number of factors that go into this index to see if that was relevant. What is it about these states? We can't figure it out in terms of that. I thought that would be the easy answer, that it had to do with collective bargaining or the lack of collective bargaining. I went to George Mason as an undergrad right down the street from the National Right to Work office. So, you know, I'm now in union states, so it's different. What we did see makes a difference is in the DUI cases, each of the states where there was higher convictions for police officers arrested DUI. There had been some major policy initiative to ramp up DUI. You know, Gallup, New Mexico has long been known as the DUI capital of the United States. So uh, I don't know if anybody's from Gallup here. No? Okay. But New Mexico has made an effort in the last seven years or so to really get serious about DUI enforcement. And that's one of the states where we see officers are getting convicted of DUI in a state that we wouldn't have expected it, but, you know, we look at the policy issues that the state legislature has dealt with in the last few years, and the the governor, and new laws that went into effect in every one of those states, Michigan, Illinois, New York, New Mexico, they had changed the laws. And interestingly, it's before the law went into effect that the officers' convictions went up. I guess street cops are well aware of a law that's been changed that's going into effect next January. So instead of, you know, the usual thing where you'd see a lag after a law went into effect to see a change of behavior, we saw that it preceded the date that the law went into effect by several months, up to nine months. Kind of weird. This uh, hypothesis about why you would see that the phenomenon before the law would be in I think that's true. Also, uh, if there's a hook that the feds have put on, like the highway funding, that you've got to, you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. We're not going to tell you what to do, but you can't have the money to fix the bridges if you don't take it, that kind of thing. So I think that's true, too. Yes? Well, that's my initial thought. We're starting to get to the point where we have enough data for some really interesting studies on sentencing and that type of thing. And that's where it really is going to come into play, the initial pretrial decision on whether they're detained or not. I can tell you that it's very difficult with race. So we've got all these different, we've got ethnicity, so it's Hispanic ethnicity, and we've got different races. But several people told me, make sure you have one binary variable that's black or not black. African-American, not. So is everything other, you know, if that's easier to figure out. And I did find with the police sexual misconduct cases that black officers are apparently less liable to be charged in those cases. So that's not a bad thing. 
Well, my, my question is, I wonder, because you showed me distribution across states with victims and what happens, that if you kind of put it over the U.S. Census data to see if there's any any findings, any, uh, anything noticeable, any differences between, you know, the, the police officer and their ethnicity, the victim, as well as where that county was. One of the things that we want to do over the next few years is get more serious about the uh, spatial relations and, and to look at GIS and mapping type issues and look at some of the census type variables with that. And it's, it's simply a matter of time and money and staff resources, but you're absolutely correct. That's a good area to go in. It'd be very interesting. I did include, I think, uh, in the back of the slides there, there's that obnoxious photograph they took at Bowling Green of us with John Lederbach, Steve Lab, and I. But we do have a monthly podcast. The National Institute of Justice is very interested in getting practitioner-friendly products out as a result of grants. So we've done a number of things. We have research briefs that we've posted in PDFs on our project website, which is www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost, and that URL is in there. And we have a project blog. And then we also have our audio podcasts that we produce monthly that are distributed on iTunes. Those have been really interesting, actually, and it seems to be reaching people that would not typically go and read a uh, social science referee journal article. Uh, my email address is in there as well. Uh, please feel free to contact me by phone or email anytime I can answer any questions or be any of assistance. I'd be happy to. And thank you very much for inviting me. This has been wonderful.